0: welcome to the bloomberg surveillance podcast i'm tom keen daily we bring you insight from the best in economics finance investment and international relations find bloomberg surveillance on apple podcasts soundcloud bloomberg.com and of course on the bloomberg
1: i wonder if Gabrielle.
0: Uh, Gabriela Santos
1: would want to uh, read Barrons this weekend. I did, so you're
0: better prepared to talk to Gabriela. No, no,
1: not necessarily. (laughs) Nice big photograph of uh, Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs on the cover of Barrons. Uh, Gabriela Santos is uh, the uh, vice president for uh, J.P. Morgan and um, our global market strategist for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Gabriela, thank you very much for being here. Good morning. Thank you so
2: much. Good morning. You
1: you know, as I was mentioning to Tom, it looked like there was a crush of people who really wanted to. be in that room. And I'm wondering if you felt that there may be, obviously you were not there, (laughs) if there was a change in sentiment because of the remarks that were televised and broadcast by the president on that Friday, and whether that has had any effect in your mind about investor psychology.
2: So if we think about how investors are feeling right now, they're feeling quite good about the global economy. They're feeling like we're finally (laughs) on solid footing. But they're also wondering what could disrupt that balance. And so what I think uh, investors were looking for in that speech uh, was any sort of uh, sign or inkling of really around trade policy, which is seen as perhaps one of those risks that could disrupt this really good environment we're seeing for the global economy. And in that sense, uh, I do think it was uh, well-received. It was seen as a pragmatic uh, speech uh, by someone who doesn't want to disrupt uh, that balance for the U.S. and global economy. But I do still think that there are some trade anxieties lingering in the back of investors' minds.
1: Well, certainly we've got the last meeting, I think, today in Montreal of the uh, last meeting for this round of NAFTA renegotiation uh, talks. Having said that, we don't know what's uh, going to happen. Uh, Let's say things stay the same, status quo. Latin America specifically, I want to get your thoughts, investing in Latin America. I-,
2: I smile when you say that because it's it's really the first time I would say in six, seven years, where Latin America is actually uh, a positive story, right? So we do see growth turning around. Latin America is likely to grow at potential this year for the first time in those six, seven years. Well, you got years. rising
1: commodity prices, that's gotta be good for com- <laughs> countries that mine <laughs> copper, for example, that's- or Brazil getting past their Petrobras scandal?
2: Yeah, so rising or just stable commodity prices are definitely a support for the region. But even more than that, I think it's about a lot of countries having really hit rock bottom when it comes to economic growth, and Brazil really comes to the forefront. Uh, So it's about a cyclical improvement uh, and also the perspective of a structural improvement with uh, several uh, changes in administrations towards a more business-friendly stance.
0: Gabriela, we spoke with the finance minister of Indonesia today, a lengthy conversation. Conversation with uh, Mr. Mulyani. Um, I- I- Indonesia's maybe a textbook of the complexity we don't see as equity investors. It's not just about buying a telephone company anymore, is it? How do you go about acquiring shares to make capital gain in these complex stories, these complex nations?
2: So, uh, I mean, if you think about all of the different puzzle pieces that make up it- this term that we use of emerging markets, it's really very, very complex, right? And and so the way that we approach emerging markets is we have to have people on the ground, right? People who truly understand the dynamics in these economies, uh, the, the dynamics in the political sphere, and frankly, just the dynamics at the company level, right? So the way that we think about emerging markets is really the most important thing when we look at the long run is earnings, right? And, and that's the same for emerging markets as well. So we have to have a, a good uh, feel for how earnings growth uh, is yeah. looking in, in a variety of companies, countries, Tom and, just wants and to spheres. know what to buy
1: or what to sell. Like <laughs> no, Should no, you be but... going into the ETF EEM, for example? What right? is the I ETF share?
2: EEM? The it's the iShares
1: MSCI market. uh, Emerging Markets ETF.
2: So I would say that overall it's a positive environment for emerging markets as a whole. Right? So if passive is your only approach, that that's fine. But if you are able to take the active approach, um, then there's definitely value to be had. And if you look at the correlations between countries and emerging markets, they're actually pretty low. So you are getting a bang for your buck for actually uh, picking countries, picking stocks, and, and really having that okay. on the ground field. Give us a country. So as we were mentioning, Latin America, uh, I, I feel quite optimistic about, um, and it's not just because I'm Brazilian, but I do think <laughs> that there's a lot to be said about Brazil this year, uh, with growth finally really picking up, and as a result, <clears throat> earnings growth picking right. up as well.
0: Where does weak dollar play into that? If Mr. Mnuchin gets his way, even if it's eventually adjusted as it was, does does weak dollar play into... Uh, Does weak dollar push against gains in those Latin American countries?
2: No, weak dollar is is really great, actually, for emerging markets. Um, So if we think about just two main ways, right? So a weaker dollar relieves some pressure uh, on inflation in a lot of these countries. It allows their central banks to keep rates pretty low. So that's helpful. (laughs) That's a change from 2014, 2015 with the strong dollar. And then lastly, if you have a weaker dollar, it's also about the signal it sends. It sends the signal that growth is better elsewhere, that investors have a good risk appetite uh, for countries outside of the US. So all those factors actually help emerging markets. weak dollar is a good thing.
1: Okay, so the weak dollar is a good thing. And if you don't necessarily feel constrained to become a passive investor, is there any industry group or any specific area that you would recommend? Because I know that there are elections coming up mm-hmm. all over Latin America this year.
2: Mm-hmm. So emerging markets has beneath the surface a uh, Uh, shifted shapes over the past couple of years. It started rebounding in 2016. It was purely a commodity story. So materials, energy, and that was it. We've moved on from that. Last year, it was all a story about technology. And so Asia was the biggest uh, gainer there. I think this year, it's a different story. Um, It's really two stories. It's about the improvement in domestic demand. So when we talk about Brazil turning around, the consumer coming back. So that would argue for things like uh, consumer names, consumer discretionary, as well as financials. And I think the other second bigger story is also about big export powerhouses benefiting from the improvement in industrial production and capex and developed markets, and that would argue for things like industrials in Asia.
1: Well, it seems as though Boeing, not to mention Asia for a second, but Boeing is certainly believing in part of this because of the ongoing negotiations to acquire a part or all of uh, Embraer, the uh, mm-hmm. aircraft manufacturer
2: in Brazil. In Brazil. So that's still... Uh, I would say is there are Amber some Air political. Is Emperor Air a national trophy? Right, so there are some political considerations there. You're Brazil...
0: going her into trouble on this. This is worse than talking about blockchain whether or Bitcoin. <laughs> I didn't say a thing Three. about Bitcoin. I know. <laughs> or corn. Mr. Base. Diamond may be listening.
1: I'm not going there.
0: <laughs> Gabriela Santos, thank God we're out of time <laughs> with JP Morgan, right. asset manager. Thank you so much. With us now, Dana Telsey of the Telsey Advisory Group. Dana, thank you for joining us on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television, earlier where we uh, dived into luxury. Let's dive right now to the death of retail. Retail's terrible. All the charts are ugly, except in June-ish of last year, they all started to vault higher in share price. Macy's up maybe is a big thing, up a little bit, but some of these stocks have really moved. Let's go back. Why did retail start to do better summer of last year? The
3: group bot- and Tom, thank you very much for having me. You're exactly right. The group bottomed in August, and in mid November, it improved with the initial reads that the, that the holiday season, the fourth quarter outlook, was off to a solid start. And that was followed by tax reform becoming a reality. And then from yeah. there. Keep from- going. From mid-August to mid-November, our stocks are up 6.8% versus the market up just under 5 And then from mid-November until now, the stocks are up almost 17% versus the market up 10%. And frankly, valuations on current consensus are certainly reasonable. And earnings in our group are going to benefit from lower tax rates. So you're still going to have some momentum with the right. easy comparisons.
0: I mean, within this, is the why up and is it at the top-line rate? revenue in that crazy mix of unit and price, or is it down the income statement where they're finally gonna maybe generate some cash? Which is it, at the top or the middle of the income statement?
3: It's both. I've got the top because there's a stronger response to the fashion cycle. I got I have in the middle it's better positioned store fleets, it's improved e commerce capabilities, and I've got a macro. I have higher income consumers and lower income consumers. Each having more disposable dollars, and I don't have the election hangover like you had last year.
1: Uh, Dana, uh, Pim Fox here. Uh, are you on Instagram by any chance?
3: Not right now.
1: Okay, but you are a member, right? Yes. Okay, so you're one of 800 million users. 80% of those users are actually connected to a business by choice. And where I'm going uh, with this is that Facebook, of course, the parent company of Instagram, now has agreements to take data from in-store positions of customers. In other words, they can geolocate you (laughs) in a store. They then take the data from the store and combine that with your online activity. Is that something that you're seeing as being productive, not only for obviously Facebook, but for the stores themselves?
3: We see more focus on knowing more about your customer, whether it's from social media whether it's from CRM systems, whether it's from enhanced loyalty programs, instead of the customer just going to the store, the store is coming to the customer. But you need to marry this activity of buying with the activity of doing. And what we're seeing is we're seeing experiential retail come to the forefront.
0: Well, the reason I mention this all experiential is experiential be- retail. Pim is where your wallet. Experi- right. It just means spend
1: more. Yeah. Well, but, well uh, think, uh,
3: think about it. You have gyms like Yoga Works. You have beauty salons like dry bar. You have movies, which are now wine, dine, and recline theaters, like I pick. So I have a new way that customers are are That's trafficking
0: right. in centers. Dana's helped us here, Pim. It's going to wine, be wine, dine, dining, and recline, recline. surveillance. Yes. Right.
1: <laughs> he doesn't even need the movie. He just wants to do all three. He doesn't you, need need all,
0: the... you need
3: it all, and, and it happens.
1: Okay, at, at but having theaters. said that, what I was going with this Instagram and online connection is about a third of the content that people who use Instagram save you know, the new save post feature, right. are from business accounts, right? So that means they're using it as a wish list of products that they may eventually purchase, and as a result, you now know that as a merchant, you can help them make that purchase in some way.
3: Exactly. Well, what, one of the things you're seeing is, where are companies investing their advertising yeah. dollars? You've seen a shift going on, and a shift towards social media and Instagram is what we're seeing right. happen.
0: Dana, one final question. Who's battling best against the onslaught known as Gucci? Who's, like, like fighting Gucci the best?
3: I mean, you have to think there's a couple of companies out there. You have LVMH, who has so many brands and so many creative directors. You have PVH with Calvin Klein and with Tommy Hilfiger. And let's see what Caring does, given the fact that Gucci. I mean, as you said, the momentum is continuing. I
0: think something conservative for you, Dana, like the Queen Margaret leather pump. You can't make this up, folks. The Queen Margaret leather pump at Bergdorf, one thousand one hundred fifty dollars. Every home should have, well, at least the black ones, but maybe even pin the pink and the black ones as well. Dana Telsey, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Telsey Advisory Group as well. Just. The final chapter of his book, call it 20 pages, is probably a good place for the president to start. A strategy for competing in a globalized world. After the Pierce Morgan uh, interview, Edward Alden, his book, Failure to Adjust, is absolutely phenomenal. It is a dense pro read on how Americans got left behind. And the global economy. Ted Alden, good morning. Um, Is you right about the startling comments the president made to Mr. Morgan uh, about Europe? I've had a lot of problems with the European Union. It may morph into something very big. Um, He's gone after people that we usually think of. Why go after Europe?
4: Well, I presume the reason he's going after Europe is the same reason he's going after Mexico and after South Korea and after China, which is the large trade surplus that Europe, mostly Germany, runs with the United States. But it is an odd choice. I mean, if you look at where the real challenges on trade lie, China looms by far the largest. Yeah. And we could sure use the Europeans' help on that one.
0: We could use the Europeans' help, which speaks of maybe – Multilateral is too strong. a, uh, Some would say hope and prayer. I don't mean to give an opinion, <laughs> but I mean it, really. The body language at Davos was okay. We're bilateral, but we're going to make the rules. Is that what he wants with Europe as well? We're bilateral, but we make the rules on Bree cheese.
4: I don't know. It's it's a little puzzling. I mean, the you know the chance to make the rules on Bree cheese, and it wasn't going to happen even there. But that was the TTIP talks, and those have been suspended. Neither the Europeans nor this administration <laughs> or Particularly eager to move forward, but but I would think that there are some at least some lowest common denominator possibilities for cooperation, and 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 that would be on China. I mean, European companies are having the same problems in China that American companies are having. Um, that's a much bigger fish to fry, it seems to me, than than worrying about Germany's trade surplus with the United States. Most of which is you know kind of. Fairly come by the Germans are a great manufacturing nation. They make really good products. That's kind of the well, way the world's supposed to work. Pim,
0: one more question are, do we have a quote unquote <coughs> excuse me it's a plague folks massive uh, trade same. deficit. Do we have a massive trade deficit with germany
4: well it's i mean it's large it's you know in the sort of sixty seventy billion dollar range but if you know if you compare it to the the deficit with China, which is over three hundred and fifty billion dollars, no I don't think massive is the right word. I think significant perhaps.
1: I'm wondering, based on the title of your book, Failure to Adjust, How Americans Got Left Behind in the Global Economy, what would be a specific example of something that we would see in another country that we don't see here that you find that we're left
4: behind? Oh, a whole bunch of things. I mean, you look at at the existence of apprenticeship programs and and work education experience, far more prevalent in Europe. You look at their system for supporting unemployed workers and getting them back into the job market. The average European country spends five or six times uh, what we do. Okay, but hang on, hang on right there. Okay, so hang
1: on right there with unemployment. So why do you have chronically high unemployment in a place like Spain?
4: Oh, well, look, I I mean, Spain is not, you know, particularly the best model here, and there are lots of reasons for high unemployment. Um, What I'm saying is that if you lose your job in Germany or Denmark or Sweden or most of the major... Well, wait, 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 wait. You can't cherry pick
1: this, can you? I mean, I'm just saying, look, if you look at the Europe, you're you're saying that the United States has got left behind for unemployment benefits. We do have unemployment insurance, and... You have a completely different mindset when it comes to the labor market here because of the effect of unions, right? Unions sit on the boards of most companies in Germany.
4: Oh, look, I, I would agree that there are reasons for the difference. I'm, I'm just saying that if you're trying to get maximum benefits out of your workforce, retrain them for the jobs that are available. You've got 6 million jobs open in the United States right now, and manufacturers crying bloody murder because they don't have folks with the skills to fill those jobs. And we are doing little or nothing as a country to try to meet that demand.
1: So you, you feel that the, it's the government's responsibility to do that?
4: No, not necessarily. I mean, if you look at the Swedish model, it's all run by the companies with some cooperation from the union. Uh, excuse me, I got a bit of Tom's <clears throat> plague. You've got the plague. Um, I, I, I think mean, I think Colin, the companies do are the better plague, Right? To do
0: Everybody's this. got the plague. I mean,
4: it's it is it's a bad <clears> season. Absolutely,
0: it is a bad uh, a bad season. Within you know all that we're going, what are you going to listen for from the State of the Union? I assume it's going to be the same discussion is Davos, which is, you know, this is the way America's doing it. We're angry. We're an aggrieved America. So these are the rules. And if you want to participate, great. But is that a trade policy? Well, it's not a trade
4: policy in the sense that you got to make some choices. Obviously, you can pick fights and there are some fights worth picking. But I think the president has got to decide which those are. Are we more worried about NAFTA? Are we more worried about Korea? Are we more worried about China? Are we more worried about Germany? What's the order of priority, and how uh, is the United States going to go after these? We, we, we may know more very soon when the, the announcements are made with respect to China trade policy, which are, which are coming soon. But I'm, I'm hoping to get some clearer sense of the hierarchy of priorities for this administration on trade.
1: Well, the most recent news, perhaps, is the Bombardier deal, right? Bombardier can now start shipping those C-series jets to Delta Airlines because of that ruling of the U.S. trade panel that was on Friday, right? And so that means that Boeing isn't going to get what it wants. Is this an indication of the kind of things you're talking about?
4: Well, I mean, you can't necessarily conflate this with the Trump administration's policy. That decision was made by the International Trade Commission, which is an independent body, a long history of independence. They looked into the case and simply said, you know, Boeing's claim for having been injured doesn't hold up. And I think a lot of the analysts looking at it thought that was the correct decision. Um, interestingly, though, those planes are now coming from Alabama. I mean, Bombardier entered into a joint venture with Airbus to produce them inside the United States, in part because they were having their own problems, but in part to get around what they feared would be tariffs. So, so the planes... will go So to doesn't Delta, that end up being a good thing for China.
1: the United States?
4: Mm, absolutely. I mean, one of the really interesting things about Trump's policy is that in the short run, it can pay some benefits. I mean, you look at... Uh, Add the announcement by Chrysler to bring its light truck production back from Mexico. That was a hedge against the NAFTA going away, which would have meant that those vehicles faced a 25% tariff. You look at the announcements by Apple. You look at the expansion announcements by Toyota. I mean, companies are, are, are trying to say to the president, yeah, we're going to bet big on America. And, and the tax reform helps, right? You know, 21% corporate tax looks a heck of a lot better than 35%. So there's no question it can pay some benefits. question is, do other countries respond in ways that harm US export right. interests. We haven't seen that yet. But <clears throat>
0: we, we, we have could. A, we have economist Ted Holden explain to us the trade dynamics against savings equal investment and all that. Let's have you do it. As a more international relations specialist, when we say deficits are bad or surpluses are bad, that's confusing to our listeners. What do we want? Do we want a little deficit? Do we want a surplus? What what is the goal?
4: I mean, I think the goal should be global economic growth, and we obviously want a big piece of that. And that's where the focus on the deficit doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, because generally speaking, when the U.S. economy grows more strongly, the trade deficit goes up. Um, That said, you know, there are things you don't want to do. You don't want to be running a big uh, budget deficit, which the U.S. government's been doing for a long time. You don't want a currency that's too strong, that knocks you out of global markets. And, and I have some sympathy with the Trump administration on that one. So so I don't think the trade deficit alone is a good metric, but attracting investment, attracting jobs, boosting exports, those are all good things that we want to pay attention to as a country.
0: Ted Olsen with us with the Council on Foreign Relations, Failure to adjust is his wonderful book. And R.J. Gallo is with Federated, which runs a huge amount of coupon money. His focus is on municipal bonds. He's head of something called the Duration Committee. R.J. Gallo, with your experience in in fixed income, what does the Duration Committee do at a shop like Federated?
5: Uh, Good morning, Tom and Pim, and thanks for having me. Um, Our main role on the Duration Committee is to uh, make tactical calls on the direction of underlying U.S. market yields, focusing on treasuries, obviously, the, you know, sort of the basis for yeah. U.S. fixed income. Our goal there is to uh, generate alpha, generate excess return uh, by shading our duration short or long, depending upon what we expect from a macroeconomic context and a market outcome. Right. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough job. Culling rates is never an easy thing to do, especially with massive yeah. central bank balance sheets, but that's our goal.
0: Okay. What's the level of sweat at the esteemed Federated Group this morning. And I say that in the sense of all of our listeners understand yield up, price down. Where does Federated hide in 2018?
5: Well, uh, it's interesting you, you say that. We, we, we meet on an ad hoc basis and at least monthly to, to adjust our duration call. We have been tactically short uh, for, for quite some time, but to varying degrees. Uh, That worked rather well last year for all bonds, say, eight years and in. Of course, last year was a relentless flattener. This year, we're seeing all yields heading higher, uh, which is more typical. Uh, I looked at the the data going back 45 years, and only four times in 45 years has the yield on the 10-year gone in a different direction than the market-weighted average yield on the entire bar cap treasury index. Last year was one of those
0: years. That's phenomenal. Say that again. That's so important. Say it again. Pim, jump in here.
5: Only four times in 45 years of history of the bar cap treasury index has the yield on the index gone in a different mathematical direction than the yield on the 10-year, and last year was one of those years. In other words, it was extraordinary. Uh, And we anticipate this year will be a little bit more normal in that sense, that all yields will be heading higher we're not positioning for a massive spike or a massive bear market or a rerun of the taper tantrum. But we think that the U.S. economy, the global economy, even the inflation picture, uh, are such that yields should be heading upwards and a, and a cautious duration short is warranted. Uh, in terms of what are you, how you're going to make money in fixed income, well, when, when high-quality treasury yields are rising, you know clearly that's some price loss. That's a headwind to total return. But active management of the other fixed income sectors – Uh, presents opportunities nevertheless. And we're still overweight, for example, corporate high yield. I know there's a lot of caution about valuation there. We've peeled back a little bit, but we remain overweight relative to our neutral positioning there. Uh, We're looking for opportunities in other spaces. Uh, We think munis, for example, um, are a a portion of the U.S. fixed income marketplace where you can get uh, relatively attractive total returns versus treasuries.
1: Well, that's where I wanted to go with you is the municipal bond market, an article recently in Barron's talking about pension fund liabilities for public pension funds. Having said that, what area of the muni market would you be interested in? Are we talking revenue bonds or anything specific?
5: We tend to be, and have been for for a while now, and I would say we arguably were a little early in some cases, we tend to be overweight uh, revenue sectors that have a uh, greater leverage or exposure, if you will, to the economic cycle. So that would include uh, areas like toll road revenue bonds, airport revenue bonds, both of which have done relatively well in, a, in an absolute return standpoint and a relative return standpoint, because the underlying economy has been winded the back of the performance of those types of issuers. Um, we also tend to be a little underweight, local GOs. Uh, there we were a little early, I admit. Um, the pension challenge is well known. It is, uh, however, not universal. Pension challenges are far greater in states like New Jersey and Illinois than they are in Florida, uh, for example. And so there are plenty of opportunities to uh, be selective about which geos you own. And we have tended to do that. The market does create opportunities where assets are mispriced or poorly priced um, relative to the risks they present. So for example, Illinois in the first part of last year Everybody hated Illinois, and the spreads were huge, you know, 250 basis points over AAA munis. We felt ultimately they were going to resolve their multi-year budget impasse, and we were adding at that time. That was a huge opportunity for outperformance, which actually worked. Of course, pensions aren't fixed in Illinois because they finally got a budget, so that's a multi-chapter story that still has many chapters to go. But our active management is focusing on revenue bonds and taking risk when we feel like prices are compensating us for taking that risk in spots even where GOs uh, may be struggling with pension challenges.
0: Thank you so much, RJ Gellar. We need to get you back for a longer discussion. We're sorry with the news flow today, but with Federated, this is an important discussion on those challenges thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on apple podcasts soundcloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer i'm on twitter at tom keen before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide i'm bloomberg radio